The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Box your headlines this morning. U.S. Senate Republicans reject G7 plans for a minimum 15% corporate tax rate. Meanwhile, the head of a major tax consultancy tells CNBC it would give business more certainty, but warns the agreement may look different when put into practice. U.S. stocks start the week mixed with one eye on Thursday's inflation data and Asia follows suit as Japan's economy shrinks less than expected in the first quarter. Morning, everybody. Apple's turning privacy from a marketing slogan into a business advantage as it unveils new operating systems with apparently a sharp focus on protecting the user. Uh, and take a look at this. Bitcoin weekly outflows hit a record high, topping $140 million as the cryptocurrency faces more controversy. And now it looks like US authorities have recovered $2.3 million in Bitcoin ransom paid by Colonial Pipeline. Biogen stock soars by more than a third after the FDA approves the groundbreaking Alzheimer's drug that has developed despite controversy over clinical evidence. Let's talk a little bit about this uh, tax story. Several key U.S. Republicans have rejected the G7's global minimum tax agreement, casting serious doubt over whether the Biden administration will be able to get the landmark deal through Congress. GOP Senator John Barrasso, who chairs the Senate Republican Conference, said the deal would be anti-competitive and harmful to the U.S. economy, just as it reopens from lockdown. The administration may now need to craft a new international taxation treaty to get that initiative through. Policymakers are reportedly working to ensure Amazon is included in the G7 tax deal, despite the company reporting a profit margin below the current 10% threshold. According to multiple reports, negotiators are exploring special measures for the $1.6 trillion tech giant, which may include setting individual targets for its lucrative cloud computing and advertising businesses. The G7's deal to create a new global minimum corporation tax will help with regulatory clarity. EY Global Chairman and CEO Carmine DeCibio has told CNBC in a special first on interview. Speaking to me as part of the company's World Entrepreneur of the Year event, he also said the agreement may look different once it's actually adopted. Well, I think the arrangement is significant. It's certainly something that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the seven countries have pulled together on. It does mark a different view 
uh, from several of the countries, uh, in, in particular the U.S., uh, who is much more willing to work with its G7 counterparts, its G20 counterparts on really establishing a global framework around tax. But the issue is, Karen, that this is really an agreement and a framework, but really the, the devil's in the detail. And all this has to happen in terms of laws have to be enacted in each country. And I think many countries are going to really look to see whether this is a reality uh, in, in some of the bigger countries, in particular in the U.S., where there's a divided Congress. And is this agreement really going to be a reality? Now, from a business perspective, I think many of the large multinational corporations um, would say, <clears throat> if this is the case, it's fine because it gives them consistency. It gives them uh, you know, so something that they can count on as opposed to a lot of uncertainty. It gives them certainty. So, so that part, I think, could work. Um, and also, from a U.S. multinational perspective, in particular tech companies, you know, there's been the threat of a digital tax, and this would supplant that threat at least it's supposed to. So that would be one of the concerns that the U.S. multinationals will have, in particular the tech companies, that if this really does go into play, that the digital tax uh, from some of the other countries will not. So there's a lot to be dealt with in the details here. I think it's actually a great step forward um, and, quote, it's an agreement. Um, but for it to become reality, uh, it's got to be enacted in each one of the countries. One of the hopes around this tax is that it could reduce complexity down the track. Do you think it will actually achieve that? And if so, what does it mean for global accountancy fees that have worked very much on the back of uh, some of this complexity that have been required for, for loopholes, uh, for instance, for many, many years? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I, I'm not sure it's going to really reduce complexity, maybe to some extent, but there will be a lot to do in terms of actually enactment as well as then adherence to any kind of global tax policy. So from that perspective, actually, it will probably generate uh, a lot of advisory fees, not only for us, but for all our competitors as well. Um, this is something that I think the world is complicated. Uh, tax and making sure that tax is fair across the world will always be complicated, no matter how much we try to simplify it, because it's not easy to have a system that's really fair. So even this agreement, you know, there, there are countries that are you know, they have very low tax rates today. How are they going to fit in? So there's a lot to do going forward. So it's, uh, I, I don't think it's going to really impact uh, the accountancy fees as much uh, as maybe people think. I also asked Decibio for his view on concerns about a recovery-driven liftoff in inflation. Well, that's a great question, Karen. And I have to tell you, even over the last three or four days, personally, I've become more and more concerned around inflation. And I have been talking to, to many clients, um, you know, they're, they're, the pricing pressure is there. Uh, raw materials are more and more expensive. Now, some people would say it's only in certain sectors, but it seems to be broadening uh, from all the clients I talk to. In particular, construction and raw materials, uh, prices are really through the roof and there's real short supply. Now, some of that people think is short term, which, which might be the case. But that seems to be building from the clients I talk to. So I am much more concerned about inflation, in particular in the U.S., over the last four to, you know, four to five days in talking to clients than I had been before. Come on to CBO there for me. Why talking about uh, first up taxation, the changes around the G7 corporate minimum tax 
but also about inflation. I want to pick up on that point because we continue to look at pricing pressure. And I think uh, many areas of the markets are concerned that we're still going to see these pricing pressures uh, despite the Fed assurances. And what we had as we wrapped up the last week, uh, the very tame employment report, not exactly stoking fresh concerns around inflation. That said, if you circle across to the commodities complex, there are more and more stories. And just as DeCibio was talking about there, uh, even on oil yesterday, the reports crossing that traders were now having a one-way bet on oil hitting $100 per barrel at some point. That may be transitory, and I'm sure Steve has a view on that. But the other area of the markets where there could be concerns comes around the copper price. Don't forget we've been talking about a super cycle in some commodities, and that very much focuses on copper. We're not just talking about a recovery phase here when it comes to this part of the market. We're also talking about very big super trends, namely the, the greening of economies and this rush towards electric vehicles, a three times more product, copper product used in electric vehicles than in traditional cars. And what we've had in the last 10 years, another story we've been talking about has been this balance sheet rationalization at some of the major mining companies, which means limited investment in fresh copper mines or or limited investment in the ramp-up phase, which could mean that we're left a little bit short. And if you think about this through the lens of the chip shortage, it's not been easy to correct. And you think about manufacturing of chips, a little bit easier than creating fresh mines. So you sort of wonder just how long some of these pricing pressures may remain for. It could be a little bit more enduring than we're thinking about as we talk about a transitory pricing environment or on some of these pressures coming through that the Fed has been talking to us about. And to the audience, a uh, wonderful piece on the website written by Jeff Cox um, on CNBC.com. Uh, it reflects the view of uh, Deutsche Bank. Uh, Jim Reed was on Street Signs yesterday. And I think um, Deutsche Bank have actually put themselves out there and said, we think we're going back to something that looks like 1970s style inflation. Uh, they're pointing the finger at the Fed. The Fed is the problem. The Fed is willing at this stage and it's using its current framework to run the economy hotter. And I think um, the key question here is one of psychology, whether ultimately these higher prices embed themselves in consumer expectations and create a change in consumption patterns because people then get worried about constantly rising prices. I don't think the evidence is in yet to suggest that that's actually taking place at this point. But it is worth reading the piece because I think they lay out the arguments fairly neatly as to what 1970s style inflation would look like. One, then they, they flag the risk of a, a Volcker-type response, which would ultimately stamp on economic activity as a way of reining back the inflation. That would obviously be brutal if we were to go down that road. Politically, that feels very unlikely at the moment. So then the other corollary of, of the higher inflation is that if ultimately the central banks have to react with higher interest rates, there is so much debt around that that then, again, stamps on the growth momentum. And I guess that's the risks in the argument. Go and have a look. The, the, uh, in my opinion, the jury is still out, though, as to what this inflation looks like and whether the transitory call is correct at this point. But it is interesting that Jim Reed and Deutsche Bank feel that they have to put a stake in the ground and they are non-consensus, I would say, but they're one of the few investment banks that's saying it is coming, it will be like the 70s. Yeah, and where and I, I, I saw the same article and I thought exactly the same thing as well. It's nice to get someone who's not part of the herd mm. uh, making these comments. Uh, inflation during that period averaged nearly 7% percent as well. But I just want to go back to something I've said a couple of times previously. What is what is everyone so afraid? If the policy is working, why are they so afraid of it working? 
The aim is to create a degree of inflation, 2% plus. Why is the Federal Reserve so desperate to talk us down that they are achieving their goal? It's quite extraordinary. It's almost the reverse psychology that we've had from Kuroda and others over the years, where we hope to get to 2%. We hope to get inflation back into the Japanese economy, which, by the way, they failed ignominiously to do so as well for a variety of reasons. But it's almost now it's like, no, 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 we haven't got inflation. We haven't got it. It's just transitory. Why is the psychology so terrified of achieving its goal? And I will refer back to the comment you made, and it's a comment that we've talked about a lot on this channel, is that there is so much blooming debt out there. And we've had such an enormous monetary expansion, uh, a accompanying that debt as well, that there is absolute terror. You've only got to look at any number of the statistics that is telling you there are pockets of extreme inflation out there, including UK housing market data yesterday. <coughs> Gorm, you're going to come in. Well, I'm just going to mention, um, you know, this, this terminology anchored, anchored expectations. And that's the, the, <laughs> that's the daft bit about all of this, isn't it? Because they want inflation expectations to be anchored, but they also want a bit more inflation at this point to hit that 2%, as you're saying. But Thursday, we're going to get a print that at the moment, the forecast suggests will be 4.7% for May. Now that comes back to this argument about we're going to run hot uh, for a little bit here. But this idea of anchoring you know, it, it's like some kind of fetish within the central banks that can they just... think this can be achieved and that you can just persuade yeah. people that what you see in front of you with rising prices is not really rising prices. Can I just confirm, because of the job that Karen, you and I do, anchoring is not a fetish? <laughs> mm. Right, OK. It's good. Tuesday morning humour. Yes. I didn't go very well yesterday it. with our German correspondent, <laughs> did it? Right, OK. So, look, <laughs> I, I want to carry on the conversation, actually. And uh, markets, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Lowest since... Um, worst performance since the 19th of, uh, 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 of, of May. Now, I, I'll carry on. You can roll through the boards, if you like. But I want to carry on this conversation. We're talking about some data. Now, everyone's looking at payroll on Friday. Jeff already mentioned the CPI on Thursday. I think the data today, the JOLT survey is as important as either of those two. Huh? I hear you say. We weren't told to look at this one. I'll tell you why I think it's important, because some of the numbers are absolutely stratospheric. Now, there are three types of numbers you need to look at if you're going to bother to listen to me uh, and look at the JOLT survey. It's basically job openings and labour turnover survey, right? There are hirings, there are job openings, and there are quits. Of those three, which is the most important? I don't know, but I think they're all fascinating. For instance, right, job openings in March, bearing in mind how many, how many jobs have we lost since the pandemic in the US now? About 8 million, yeah? 8.4, maybe we could argue. Right, so the job openings hit a record high in March. Record high, highest ever, 8.1 million. Funny, that's a very familiar number, isn't it? Very similar to the other number I just mentioned. 8.1 million, right? Hirings, hirings rose to 6 million, which is the highest since November. But it's the quits rate I'm interested in because you only quit your job, quit, not fired, you only quit your job if you think you can get another job or you're not economically worried about your situation. Yeah, you got it? Okay, right. So the quits were 3.5 million, which is the highest since January last year, before the pandemic when we had those other 8 million jobs that I just mentioned, were already back in the economy. So people are quitting at the biggest rate because they feel they can get another job, because they feel okay financially. 
That is why, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to just do a little bit more work for once and pay attention to the Jolt survey. If not, Steve Leesman and the team will talk you through it later on, of course. OK, this is uh, where we're on the markets. You didn't roll through, so I'll show you the treasuries. Uh, 1.567, was it? 1.562 now. OK, on the 10-year, uh, the 5-year, 0.7917 as well. Asian indices look like this. A uh, bit of action to the upside on the ASX. Uh, elsewhere, a very tempered, calming. Very interesting. Some of the testing going on in China at the moment. Absolutely yeah. tens of million. I think uh, we've got an article on that on .com as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and surprising, you know, such a muted reaction from the Nikkei on the back of the better-than-expected terrible first quarter GDP number. Yeah. Do you want 30 seconds on jolts, by the way? Am I overplaying it? Uh, I don't think so. No, I, I think it is It is um, a very important number. The problem is, I think the more important figure, as you um, have highlighted, is the participation rate. And the participation is rate is going in the wrong direction. Eight, yeah. It's going in the wrong well, direction. Yeah, but, but people aren't... If, well, it's basically a lower figure you're talking about. It's low yeah. 60, well, it's 61 handle at the moment, I think it is. So, so yeah, it's, it's one percentage point plus lower than it was uh, back at the start before the pandemic. But, but if people aren't participating, there's a whole host of reasons why they're not participating. Yes. Not all of them uh, are external macro factors. Sometimes you say, do you know what? Maybe my stimulus check is covering my heart gains. Maybe I don't feel I need to work as well. So there is a Republican argument there that perhaps... Yeah. And again... We can stand aside on this one. That too many people don't need to go back to work. Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, I listen to a lot of uh, uh, economic podcasts, and I think there is a third argument that is not being made, perhaps deliberately, by a lot of the people that we talk to, because a lot of the people that we talk to say it's all about the benefits, because people are getting yes. the benefits they're not going back to work and they dismiss the COVID argument. OK, fine, I'll go down the road with you. But I think there's also another argument here and it's one about um, skill sets. And I don't, I don't think it's about people, you know, not wanting to rush back into uh, jobs in cafes or coffee shops, or whatever. I think it's people who have lost their job, who lost their job last year in the first wave, perhaps, are now thinking, I want to go back into the labour force, but I want to go back at an equivalent level. And the social security actually gives me enough time to do that. To so I'm not going to panic and go and take a shelf stacking job. I am going to wait until I can come back into the economy at an equivalent salary level. Which and comes that's back different down to how it used to be. So something that we talked about, and we've interviewed Larry Summers about it, I'd say even yeah. a decade ago, about the public school system in the United States uh, and whether it is preparing people for uh, a, a more tech-savvy or a 21st century world. we got to go. Uh, uh, Apple boosts its privacy protections as it unveils a suite of updates at its software conference. More on that in a moment. And for more on the challenges that Janet Yellen faces in selling the G7 tax plan at home, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
Right, just looking at what the high of Bitcoin was this year as well. We're roughly half where we were. Uh, Bitcoin products and funds saw record outflows of $141 million last week, according to CoinShares. The digital currency manager said the moves were prompted by price weakness. Huh? I thought all these people were desperate for a new entry point. Oh, anyway. Uh, inflows into the cryptocurrency are still up over $4 billion so far this year. Most of that at a higher price, I'm afraid. Karen. Let's talk about Apple, which is beefing up its privacy protection. That was the main takeaway from the iPhone Maker's annual conference for software developers. However, the Tim Cook-led company revealed that its new privacy feature will not be available in China. Let's get out to a colleague, Arjun, for more. Arjun, uh, this conference is typically a huge act, a $50 million event, about 6,000 developers turning up. But one of the big concerns this year, as it was held virtually, was about uh, some of the fees that Apple extracts, but also the privacy changes. But these changes do not apply to China. Why not, given we've seen such a huge crackdown on privacy also on the mainland? Well, specifically, the product that they're not launching in China is called Private Relay. And what that effectively does is hides a user's browsing activity, their identity when they're browsing the web. Now, it's not exactly a full-blown VPN or virtual private network. These, are, of course, are required to surpass the internet censorship in China and jump over the Great Wall to access some of the block sites here like Google and Facebook. However, no doubt it will cause concern in China. And when we asked Apple why they weren't releasing it they, uh, in China, they cited local laws. Now, VPNs hold a, a bit of a, a gray area legally in China unauthorized VPNs that have not been okayed by the government are not allowed to be used here. And so there could be some concern uh, from Apple that if they release this product in China, it could fall foul of some of those laws, even though they're not marketing it as a VPN. So that's one point really. But certainly for the rest of Apple users, privacy is a big point because they see it as a way to differentiate from some of the Android-based players there. And you saw this product as well as uh, another service called iCloud Plus, which includes a, a, a feature called Hide My Email. Again, similar kind of thing. Offers uh, users some form of anonymity when they're using emails as well and encryption on top of that. So there are a lot of these features Apple uh, is trying to push here as it continues to try and push the hardware part of the business. But we know software is an increasingly important part for Apple. And so that's why you saw a lot of focus on this, on the new features and the way Apple is trying to bring its ecosystem together through all the products and keep the users stuck in that iOS and Apple ecosystem, guys. Arjun, thank you very much for running through the detail there. Let's get to Ben Wood, who is Chief Analyst at CCS Insight. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. There's a lot to unpick here in this uh, Worldwide Developers Conference yesterday, but I want to pick up on the privacy changes because uh, we saw this huge fight with the developers griping over the fact that they don't often get much in the way of income. They pay this huge amount of 30% to Apple for uh, the fee for the App Store. And then this privacy protection now has come in the way they used to derive a lot of their revenues from advertising, but they're no longer as successful that because of the, the uh, device to stop tracking. What does it mean for the profitability of some of these developers and where do you think Apple ends up settling up with some of these uh, key developers on its site? Well, Apple didn't make any statements about the, the revenue share or what's happening with the App Store. And given the current litigation with uh, Epic, we weren't surprised uh, that they, they didn't make any mention of that. Um, the privacy piece um, really depends where you sit. So um, if you are a company that is aggressively pursuing a an advertising-led 
um, business model which uses tracking and, and allows you to monetize that data, then this could be very bad news. It could cause quite a bit of consternation for those companies um, who will really suffer from hiding IP addresses and locations and those sorts of things. Um, but I think it does position Apple very well as a consumer champion for privacy and certainly helps the uh, platform stand out versus rivals uh, along the lines of what Arjun was pointing out. You've seen a lot of caution around Apple stocks so far this year. Uh, you know, it's really failed to catch a bit at this point. And if you consider some of the dynamics here, the services side of the business, many had looked at the appeal here, how quickly it had grown. If you look at the number of apps from 500 to 1.8 million uh, since uh, 2008, that's a huge uh, generator now, 40 odd percent of the revenue of the business. If there is a move to try and cut some of these fees that they are effectively too high in the back of this Epic Games uh, case. What does that mean for the profitability? Can Apple simply just drag in more apps and try and compensate with increased volume because it, it by its own admission says it turns away developers every year? Can it just do that simply or is it going to be a, a hit to the revenue side? Well, let's not forget that first and foremost, Apple's primary revenue comes from its hardware. So the apps are the vehicle that keep feeding that. I don't think there's going to be any um, shortage of apps. And you also have to remember that the long tail of Apple iPhones is um, growing all of the time. So during the uh, WWDC event, which took place uh, yesterday, they um, announced the fact that their software update is going to be available over at least five years of iPhones. That even means that uh, secondhand iPhone devices um, are still revenue generative for um, Apple. Uh, so if people are installing new apps, um, there's a bigger addressable market. Now, one billion active iPhone users out there. So the iPhone really is the gift that keeps on giving um, for Apple uh, across all parts of its business. Ben, what, what's happening with Apple TV and um, Apple Music? It, it seems to me that they kind of dropped out of the running a little bit in terms of... Um, you know, excitement uh, for those who are looking at the stock at the moment. And yet we see so much action around content creation through streaming product product at the moment. Are Apple going to take these products seriously and and increase investment? Or do they all, do, are they, you know, set to continue as also RANs in a sense? It's, it's a great question. Music is doing extremely well. That's an area where um, they've um, conducted some very aggressive marketing campaigns. They've been able to displace some of their rivals like Spotify in certain markets by working with the carriers uh, to offer free periods of trial and those sorts of things. Uh, TV's harder, uh, and you would have seen some of the mega deals, for example, Amazon working with AG, uh, sorry, MGM um, and some of the other huge investments by companies like Netflix in original content. Apple aren't giving up there. Uh, they've had some big shows, um, which they have pushed out through their own channels. But certainly, I'd say music is the winner right now. And TV, the jury's probably still out. Ben, can I ask you about some of the competition here? Because there was uh, an announcement yesterday that stood out to me. This was the upgrades to the iMessage system, so you can share photos a little bit easier on that platform, but also upgrades to FaceTime to improve the sound quality. What jumped out to me about that was that it looked like a competitive threat to, to Facebook, to its WhatsApp uh, popular platform that uh, has been rolled out. And we know there's been a war of words between Zuckerberg and Cook over privacy. Did you take that too as a, a challenge to Facebook? I think there's two things there. I mean, on messaging, um, Apple has its iMessage um, platform, and therefore that's a, 
a bit of a walled garden, um, but they have tried to make that a richer experience. So by handling photos better, by handling other content better, by allowing people to embed content, locking you more into that ecosystem. So news content, for example, can be embedded into the messaging app. They're clearly looking to compete with WhatsApp uh, and also um, with WeChat and try and make iMessage a more rounded out um, program. On FaceTime, that was very, very interesting indeed. Um, the pandemic has um, signaled that um, video conferencing and group chats uh, has become very important. And most notably, what Apple did was um, allow an Apple device owner to set up a link that non-Apple owners, so um, someone who's got an Android phone or a PC, is able to join a FaceTime chat. Now, that's not going to close the gap dramatically with, uh, with, with Zoom or Microsoft's Teams, but at least it's an acknowledgement by Apple that they need to slightly open the, the, the door to their walled garden and allow people to at least have the opportunity to interact with uh, an Apple video messaging platform. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.